You're an educator in the 21st century. You're listening to a podcast from ISTE. Those two facts make it all the more likely you used a piece of multimedia in the recent past. Maybe it was a cool animation. Maybe you pulled a Khan Academy video. Maybe you set up a station rotation in a modified flipped classroom model with prepared slideshows or video demos you spent hours crafting. Here's the question, though. What role did the learning sciences have in your decisions and approach to using multimedia in the classroom? Hi, I'm Shana White. And I'm Zach Chase. And this is Course of Mind, the learning sciences podcast from ISTE. In this episode, we interviewed Dr. Chris Castro from the Center for Advanced Research and Education at the Universidad de Chile. We asked Chris to help us understand what research in the learning sciences can teach us about the use of multimedia to improve learning and teaching. We also learned about cognitive load theory and how it can help educators make instructional decisions and better design learning experiences for their students. Welcome to Course Course of of Mind. Mind. Chris Castro, hello. Thank you very much for being on Course of Mind. It's great to have you. Uh, thanks, thanks you, Zach and Shayna. Very, very interesting to be here. Our listeners who, in most cases, will probably be practitioners in the classroom, could you basically explain to us how technology can help or hinder the learning process for students? Yeah, well, in general, uh, I see technology as, uh, and if we... If we uh, go to the core of the meaning of technology, it's really just a tool. So technology is tool, using tools. So any technology is like, a, I don't know, like another tool, like a textbook, for example. So you can have good textbooks or bad textbooks. It's not that technology is going to help you just because it's technology. So technology has to have a clear goal, educational goal in mind to be a good technology for learning. Otherwise, it could be uh, do nothing, like most of the cases, or even be counterproductive to learning. So yeah, let me jump in there. So I work at the district level, um, and what we tend to do is um, have teachers who ask for kind of, can I have this technology? And they, they generally speaking, don't have a specific they, – they want a tool that does a lot of things or that can do a lot of things. And it sounds like that's not the way to go, or is that sometimes okay? Uh, yeah, for example, if we, if we talk about PowerPoint, which is a kind of a common technology, uh, there are many studies showing that using PowerPoint is not good for learning. So uh, it's not using or not using PowerPoint, but how to use it. And that's uh, where cognitive law theory or the cognitive theory of multimedia learning, they come in handy because they, they give you guidelines how to design any educational material, but mostly multimedia to improve the learning processes in the classroom or when uh, learners are learning through videos in the computer, for example, things like that. So PowerPoint is not good. I just want to repeat that. So Chris, is that the message there that we should take away? Is that PowerPoint is not good? or it's- Any technology is a tool. So PowerPoint is a tool. It's been, uh, I don't know, it has about 20 or 30 years of development. So the tool, the PowerPoint, is better than 20 or 30 years before. But uh, teachers generally don't uh, 
use it efficiently. So they could use it much better if they want to take um, use PowerPoint for uh, educational, a good educational achievement. So the take-home message is PowerPoint can be better. I like that. Um, I think of it also um, with another Microsoft tool is Excel is a lot of people don't understand the robust nature behind Excel. And I think the same can be said for something like PowerPoint. Um, that tool has been around for a very long time. And as you mentioned before, it's kind of like it's just a tool, but it's how are you using it or how are you implementing it in class and what's the rationale or reasoning behind your implementation, correct? Yeah, that's that's the idea. Yeah. So are there are there some 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 common faults uh, that you would say, oh, teachers, uh, if uh, these are kind of their common uses of technology that actually stand in the way of learning? Yeah, for example, if we, if we uh, continue talking about PowerPoint, which is kind of broad uh, technology, so that will help a lot of people, I suppose. One uh, bad use of typical bad use of PowerPoint is to have slides with full of text, and then the teacher just reads the text aloud. If, if we are uh, giving those kind of lectures to university students or high, high school students that are already very efficient in reading, they don't need to read and listen to what the teacher is saying. So instead of having a slide full of text and then reading it, uh, for example, you could put a, a, a visualization, an image, an animation in the PowerPoint, and then the teacher is explain it verbally. So he talks or she talks, but students don't read. They, they only see visualizations or images. So that would be a, a better way to, to do those slides, not filling the whole slide with text. That's one bad, and even worse than that is reading the the slides that's super interesting the reason i say that is actually my daughter um she is a fourth grader she's actually working on our genius hour project and that's what i was doing um once we got home she wanted to present it to me and she had a bunch of text on her slides because her teacher just kind of said you know put a picture in the background and then talk about what you're going to say but put it in text on the slides and i was like no like your slide should be very visually appealing and you should know the information that you can just tell them what that slide is about. I think she's talking about Arctic wolves. Um, but she had written all of her like data points on the slide. And I was just kind of like, if I'm listening to your presentation, I'm not going to be engaged because yeah. I'm probably either going to be focusing reading on the slide myself or tuning you out um, because I'm focused on reading the slide myself. So that makes like a huge point. And I'm actually going to tell my daughter that no, once I get off. Yeah, here. I just talked to somebody <laughs> who can who can set you straight on that one. That's it's, You just helped with homework, Chris. That's pretty great. Um, <laughs> so let me ask then, is the theory of how this all works, that if I put an image up there and then there's the teacher is delivering an audio explanation out loud, is the image helping to kind of encode that information in the brain and for memory retrieval? Like, okay, I can associate this image with what I've heard auditorily, or is there a, a different a different mechanism at play? No, no, that, that's the idea. That's called dual th dual coding theory. It's Pavio's theory. It's uh, from the 1970s. So, uh, and recently it's been called, for example, the multimedia principle that you learn better when you get uh, images and verbal information. So ideally, you get them in two channels, auditorily and visually. So combining the two uh, sources is, is uh, better for learning. 
provided that the image is proper. And that's another issue. If, if we use images, for example, uh, Mayer, Richard Mayer, has used for a long time um, this about uh, um, a meteorology topic about lighting formation. How, so how lighting is, is formed, you know, the clouds, the charge, electrical charge, whatever. If you uh, put an image of a lightning, uh, a photograph that only shows that, or maybe somebody burned by a lightning, that's nothing to do with the cause and effect of the lightning. So that would distract you. So you have to be very careful of what images you're using because you, teachers and many designers tend to to put uh, interesting things or uh, beautiful things, you know, uh, that convey your attention, but they distract you away from the main learning core. So make the thing the thing, right? So, so in that, yeah, so showing somebody who has been previously struck by lightning and it, that image is going to be jarring, but it isn't going to help me. It's It doesn't tell me anything about how that lightning was formed. Yeah, that's that's the that's the idea. Yeah. Okay. How does that impact um, the usage of like virtual reality or augmented reality in the classroom? Because those images are going to be even more like impressive uh, for students um, or people engaging in a lesson. How does that either help or hinder um, learning material when teachers implement VR or AR in their classroom? Yeah, that's a tricky one because VR it generally has a lot of extra information. To, to the learning core. And that's a little against cognitive load theory and the cognitive theory of multimedia learning. And in fact, Mayer has been researching recently about the, these things of VR. So for example, comparing VR versus a, we could say now an old multimedia type learning. So you use a VR versus learning from a computer, even you're watching an interesting PowerPoint or whatever multimedia. And in those cases, the VR has much more, because it has much more information, visual, it, it is appealing, but it distracts you away from the core thing that you, you need to learn. So the, the, the important take home message here is, is that, and it's, yeah, it's always a, um, a balance. So you, you, you need something interesting to engage your audience, your learners. But then if it's too interesting or has many features that are not the core learning topic that you want to convey, then it's going to be distracting. So I'm a, if, if I'm a teacher listening to this, then the parameters you've just given me are make it interesting, but not too much. How, yeah. how do I translate that into like a – Shana, what grade is your daughter in? My daughter is in fourth grade. So how, if I'm a fourth grade teacher, do I translate that kind of into a metric of, okay, but how do I, now how do I build my, let's say Google Slides, let's not keep trashing on Microsoft, let's move to a new, <laughs> a new product. So how do I, how do I translate in that into practice? It's a very difficult uh, balance. First, you need to know your audience. So you need to know, uh, maybe testing your, your students, for example, so testing them and knowing how much they know about certain topic. If they already know uh, many things about the topic, you could go around uh, putting more information and more information and because it's not going to hinder because they already know about that. So they can manage this extra seductive information 
and it can be an interesting uh, class. They can uh, get out of the classroom being very uh, thrilled by the topic because it was very engaging, etc. And they learn because they already had many uh, information already in their working memories, in their long-term memories. In those cases, uh, you have to try to keep it uh, the, all this seduction and uh, appeal. So you mentioned that balance, I guess, Fourth grade is going to be different, as you mentioned before, because that's the age that they're actually intaking a lot more um, knowledge. Whereas when you're talking about maybe like a high school junior or sophomore, um, a lot of that knowledge base should already be there. So it's that implementation of the more AR, VR, um, visually stimulating um, approaches to learning uh, might be more impactful. But I guess for a classroom teacher uh, with their practice in general, Is there a a typical balance as far as like how you can continue to keep kids, you know, engaged, but then also you're still getting the learning across? Like, I don't want to say percentages, but like if a teacher is maybe teaching that lesson on lightning, as you mentioned before, how would that look for a fourth grade teacher in comparison to maybe like a ninth grade teacher as far as like the balance between the multimedia and the actual like informative information? I would say that the main thing is to measure them beforehand. So at the beginning of the semester, the class, whatever, or maybe more frequently. So once a month, once a month. So you need to to know how much your students know, and that's also very interesting. To that's another that's not my area, but assessment and feedback and things like that are very useful for for learning. So having that information you can uh, have an idea of, okay, they know somehow something about this area, so I can incorporate more VR or more seductive things because they already know the the basics. But if they don't know the basics, uh, then maybe even uh, using, I don't know, a textbook or or something less multimedia or less engaging could could work better. So it sounds like find the find the level of the kids and then design the media to those ki- to whoever those kids are in your in your classroom that would be like a summary of cognitive law theory because they have a cognitive law theorist have what is called the expertise reversal effect so if you have experts they kind of get bored by a very um too much information or fancy things that they already know. The expertise reversal effect of cognitive law theory is one thing that that deals with these experts versus novices things, uh, differences. So for example, a novice needs less information because if he he or she gets too much information, he's going to be overwhelmed by by this extra information. But a a more uh, expert can go away with it. So you have to design differently if you are designing for novices or for experts. I'm curious because I know math is always a hugely and highly debated topic in most public schools. How does this uh, technology and multimedia impact math as far as um, learning outcomes. And then also, I know a lot of times in lower grades, there's a lot of usage of manipulatives uh, and a lot less once you get to higher grades. How does this kind of multimedia technology play a role with math learning? Yeah, for example, since you're mentioning manipulatives, 
uh, when, when once you're using manipulatives, you are um, to to say it simply, you are putting the load. I mean, the processing activity of your mind, you're putting it in your fingers, in your hands. So you have more mind to deal with difficult topics. So generally, manipulatives are good because it's kind of saying that you have more mind to work around these uh, tasks, maths in this case. And But then is this exper- expertise reversal effect. If you are novice, that could be that could help you. But then is, if you get to, uh, to, a, to a higher degree or you are more knowledgeable on these topics, then using your hands, you, you may get bored or dist- distracted because you don't need these extra resources of, of the hands. So yeah, generally to learn, to when you're a novice and you're learning some math topics or any science or whatever topic, using manipulatives or gesturing could help you. Shana, in your own practice and in mine, in my district and all my teachers, they're dealing with a really wide variety of learners and background knowledge and ability. So you've got a classroom that may have, I don't know, 28 kids in it. And some of them may be at that expert range of, of, of pieces. And some of them may be at the novice range of pieces. What's the recommendation for selecting some multimedia to help all of those kids be able to move forward with their learning? Or do we, do we say at that point, actually go with the, the more novice or do we go with more complicated or how, how, how do teachers make those selections? I'm assuming good teachers already know the answer and they already uh, have this problem and they have several ways to solve it. For example, uh, grouping the classroom in different ability groups or maybe putting a, an expert in each of the groups. But that also, um, uh, well, that's kind of a Montessori way of doing things. So you put experts and novices and uh, the experts help the novices but then the materials, the multimedia materials, sh- should be tailored to novices. Or maybe you give an extra thing to the experts. So everybody gets challenged and not uh, bored. And in those cases, yeah, may- maybe the, the short answer is to, um, to help the novices. So, yeah, I, I would say that that would be the, like the short answer, help the novices. But, but keep in mind that the experts may be, get bored. So differentiation, differentiation is just key, even with using multimedia um, in the classroom with learning, which, as you mentioned, most teachers have an understanding, I would say general for most, um, an understanding of what differentiation looks like. But I think that that's huge for you to bring out the point that the multimedia aspect for somebody who is an expert is going to impact their learning a lot differently than it would be for a novice. Yeah, and and the thing here is that uh, this differentiation has has to uh, keep the focus on the knowledge the the students already have the prior knowledge, because other types of differentiations, for example, those uh, called learning styles, so differentiating uh, putting ver- many visuals versus many verbal information or those type of learning styles, the literature is not very. Um, positive on, on their learning style. So the learning I was going to say, I'm a little worried when I hear learning styles. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the, maybe you already know and, and the audience of this podcast already know about that, but it's always good to, to remind everyone. Yeah, just for the handful that don't know, let's, let's say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, learning styles are not good. 
uh, are not backed up by research. So instead of uh, having two multimedia uh, that are different because one is for, say, visuals and the other one is for auditory learners, that, that's a quackery, uh, it's better to have one for novices and one for experts. So I wonder, thinking about research, um, and I would imagine that there are, in fact, some, some listeners who, who think, oh, but I like learning styles and who might be jarred and that is new information around the, the element of quackery, which is, which is a pretty good way to describe uh, all of that. But uh, I'm wondering, <laughs> where have you been surprised in your own research? What's, what are some findings that you've, you've either done in your own research or, or read about in the, in the papers of others that you thought, oh, that is not what I expected? I started doing uh, multimedia, designing multimedia and video and, th- and uh, yeah, and PowerPoints even, considering only visual things. So this is appealing. This font is better than this font. It's better to have a large font. And and I was based on res- on research or even on just guidelines of designers of internet, for example. And then I I came um, I discovered this topics uh, about educational psychology and about how to improve multimedia, but from an educational psychological point. So many things uh, were, uh, wow, this is, this is really something. This is really based on something. I, I am a biochemist, so I like evidence and quantitative data and things like that. So, uh, wow, this is really based on something that was experimentally compared and and, and uh, f- to, to mention some examples, uh, I must assume now a little embarrassed that I, uh, I started uh, looking for uh, these learning styles and try to find some differences between vis- visuals and auditory. And then I realized that uh, evidence showed that, that the learning styles are not research-based. And another thing, for example, in cognitive load theory, which is very typical and it's kind of related to learning styles, is that there's this principle, and it's also used in cognitive theory of multimedia learning, called the it's called the redundancy principle or effect that says that what we've been discussing now, if you add information to something, that may be detrimental instead of being positive. The, the typical thing that you could imagine if, if you don't know anything about research is, okay, since I have visual and may, I may have some uh, verbal learners or maybe since I have, uh, I don't know, students that read poorly and, and other students that read more uh, in a more fast speed, okay, I'll put a lot of... Uh, words for those uh, students that like to read and I'll add some images for those students that are visuals and then I'm going to talk or I may record something for those that are verbal. So you add many things in a slide or in a multimedia thinking, okay, with all this simultaneous information, I'm going to uh, help everyone in the classroom. Well, sure. You've given everybody that you've talked about everybody's style at that point. Yeah, but that's what uh, cognitive law theory is saying. Okay, don't do that. That's redundant. If you are putting the same information in two different uh, visual formats, that's going to be redundant. That's going not going to help, but that's going to hinder learning. It's going to be too much information to to learn. You're going to get re- distracted by that. 
I, I heard from somewhere, and I admit to not remembering if I read this in an actual piece of, of research or if this was handed to me verbally, but I heard somewhere that you want to stay at two modes, uh, right? So visual and audio um, or visual and text, but not three. That three starts to encroach on the brain's ability to really take away something from from that stuff. That yeah, that that could be related to uh, the redundancy principle, and the w- another one that is related is called the split attention effect of cognitive load theory. And uh, if we are talking only about visual and verbal, or visual, verbal, and auditory, yeah, generally it's better to have only two of those. But is the the pref- the most preferred format in in this case is verbally and auditorily. So uh, trying to avoid having too much information in your eyes, but having some information in your eyes and some information in your ears, and that would be the modality effect. So uh, one one last kind of piece here, as teachers are using more video uh, in the classroom. Is there anything that we've learned from from understanding multimedia tools that are some kind of caveats or good rules to live by around thinking about the use of the video to help um, learners? Yeah, one thing that, I, that that we we have been researching this last five years is called is related to what is calling the transient information effect. So that is not it's it's very counterintuitive, but. Uh, and there are some, of course, boundary conditions. But what we've researched is that static images, the old-style static images, are better than video or animations. So the important thing there is that when when you use animations or videos that are very transient or very long, um, that's be- that's not better than having um, shorter videos or videos that or uh, that have the capacity of being paused. And then resumed. Wait, and wait. if you remember the old wait, hold style on. animation, that is that is kind of earth shaking to yeah. me. You, uh, the <laughs> the static images are are shown to be more effective in helping the learning, and that and that okay, keep going. I'm sorry, I'm just I'm processing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the, that, yeah. <laughs> in fact, we uh, that that paper uh, got some attention because of that. Um, uh, the thing is that we use yeah we 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 used very uh, for example it was a memory task, and it was very transient. So you you had two conditions. Once you were trying to memorize symbols in different places, and they were. Um, this this was a transient video, so the symbols appeared and disappeared, and you had to remember where they were placed, versus watching these symbols uh, statically, so they were there for the whole time. So in those conditions, transient versus non-transient, we found that static images were better, and we found that the, the more time passed watching this transient information, so the more symbols you had to memorize, uh, so the longer you were watching the animation, the worse. So in, uh, th- that was aligned with with our predictions of the transient information effect. Wow. What I want to say here is that uh, transient information that could be animation or could be uh, talking, talking aloud, for example, in, in the classroom when the t- teacher talks, uh-huh. if that doesn't stop or you don't, you don't give some time to the students to, to process that information, that is going to disappear 
Okay, I'm going to be really unscientific here and say that perhaps the thing you need to be able to do or we need to be able to do as teachers is watch out to see if people are bored or confused and to, to pause and check and be like, are you interested in what I'm saying right now? Yeah, the tricky thing there is that students already know how to fake, the, you know, being interested. <laughs> or, uh, I was a student, so I know about that, and you were also. So we all know when to watch the faces of the teacher, when not to watch, uh, etc. And the, I don't know, sometimes if you are too interested, the teachers ask you too many questions. So that's, it's a tricky thing. So yeah, research is, is, is trying now to to find, for example, a body posture of students. So different ways that you can tell, okay, these students are engaged or these are not engaged because that, uh, and maybe give the, those information to the teacher. But I think what, what you're saying, Zach, is a good idea. The teachers could stop and uh, ask if, well, maybe they, they, the students can, can still fake, but they could stop and ask if they are interested or not and trying to um, par paraphrase what they talked recently, something like that. So we pause and, and think. That, I'm still kind of floored by the original, that images are a lot more impressionable or impressionable for learning. Because um, it's not true. Video. Because, yeah, that that's, I've never heard that before. So that that's kind of mind-blowing. <laughs> Let me rephrase it because, yeah, there are boundary conditions. So this is not always. If you watch too much or a very long animation or video, that don't allow you to stop and think a little bit what you're what you're watching. That's going to be worse than watching a static image or many static images that that give you this time to go back and forth. So they give you time to to think for yourself if you're if you are learning correctly or not. Super duper fascinating, um, and we're gonna wrap things up with this, Chris. Um, we're privileged to hear all this lovely information. Um, Zach and I just mentioned that we feel like this is like PD for us. Uh, but if you could say in just three things based on your research um, and your understanding of learning as it relates to technology and multimedia, what would be three things that you would tell our listeners or any practitioner in the classroom that they can do tangibly to their lesson planning or their lesson creation in regards to multimedia and technology? Yeah, well, the first thing is that uh, um, you have to, it's like a typical uh, message that you give even beyond classrooms. You have to know your audience. You have this perspective, this um, overview of what your students know then start designing a multimedia or any other te technological uh, tool for, for those students. And bear in mind that as they continue learning, you'll have to change these uh, multimedia designs. So that leads to the second main point. The most important uh, variable that you need to know about students to design any instructional material and, uh, of course, multimedia, is what's the what's the prior knowledge that they have. It's not the same to design a multimedia for uh, novices than to design a multimedia for experts. So some sometimes much information is going many different kinds of information is going to be counterproductive for novices, but for experts is going to be challenging and motivating. And the third one 
the third one would be to to keep in mind that technology is a tool and so there are good and bad uses of of those and I would say, tell the teachers that they have to be brave enough to try new technologies, but also they have to be conservative enough to use the old technologies that they've been using and that they feel confident with. For example, a textbook, static images, I don't know, a PowerPoint versus VR, because the most important thing is, is, is to keep in mind that you're using tools and you need to know the knowledge of your students. Perfect. Well, Dr. Chris Castro, thank you very much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation as ever. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Zach and Shana. Think about that last slide deck you prepared for your students. Or the last video you used in class. How did Dr. Castro affirm or challenge your approach to multimedia in support of learning? What implications might the transient information effect have on your practice? For us, some key learnings included an understanding of the impact of text, audio, and visual in multimedia. The multimedia principle that you learn better when you get uh, images and verbal information so ideally, you get them in two channels, auditorily and visually. And this guidance on staying out of our own way when using media. So you have to keep a balance between uh, being interesting, but not very much. So the learning uh, is not hampered. And finally, the expert reversal effect got us thinking about how we can craft learning experiences to meet students' needs and avoid cognitive overload. A novice needs less information because if he or she gets too much information, he's going to be overwhelmed by, by this extra information. But a, a more a expert can go away with it. So you have to design differently if you are designing for novices or for experts. What new considerations did our conversation bring up for you? What resources help you in considering multimedia and cognitive load in your classroom? As always, we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at Course of Mind and share your thoughts. Course of Mind is an ISTE podcast made possible in part by a grant from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative DAF, an advised fund of Silicon Valley Community Foundation. Our producer is Kripa Sundar. Our editor and music maestro is Trevor Stout. You can find Shana on Twitter at Shana V. White. And you can find Zach at MR Chase. And Kripa is at Kripa Sundar. And as always, for more on how the learning sciences can inform your practice, check out the Course of Mind Twitter feed at Course of Mind. Where you can learn about how other educators have applied learning sciences in the classroom and learn what we're learning. <laughs>